It's the future of food. I'm Lee Schneider. It started with the Y2K scare. Back in 1999, computers were designed with just two spaces for numbers in the date field, rather than four. When 1999 was about to roll over to 2000, everybody freaked out. Machines would think the date was 00, and experts believed that bank computers would miscalculate interest on your money. The power grid would be misprogrammed, sparking tech disaster. Your home computer would blink to black and die. People started buying seeds. They wanted to plant their own gardens in case the world ended. The world didn't end, but the seeds caught on. It was the start of Jerry Gettle's business, which thrives today. At age 17, Jerry printed his first Baker Creek heirloom seed catalog. Now his company offers about 2,000 varieties of vegetables and herbs, the largest selection in the U.S. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Sure, appreciate it. Why the passion for seeds from such an early age? Well, I guess I grew up with parents and uh, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Everybody when I was small in the Boise Valley was pretty much gardening growing up. So I think it just kind of came naturally. I, I remember gardening with both my Hispanic grandmother and then my uh, grandmother, who's more of a German and uh, Danish background. So it's, uh, you know, just kind of grew in my blood, I guess. It kind of grew up with me gardening and, and seed saving just kind of sprang out of gardening. Why are heirloom seeds important, particularly heirloom seeds and not just any seeds? Well, heirloom seeds are uh, fascinating, uh, and the term heirloom is, uh, you know, kind of a generic. It could, it's similar to antique or vintage. It, they have, have different meanings to different people, but an heirloom is a seed that's passed down from generation to generation. But basically what an heirloom seed is, uh, in most broad terms, is a seed that can be saved and passed down. So it cannot be a, like a hybrid seed. It has to be something that can be saved and passed down. The unique thing about these seeds is they not only preserve the genetics, they also tell the stories of previous generations. Uh, maybe stories that date back to Thomas Jefferson, maybe ones that date back to your great-grandmother or your uh, em- the immigrants that came here from Russia or Japan or wherever your family might have came from or other families. So they tell stories and make connections as well as preserve all these beautiful genetics from so many different places and keep alive history. Basically, they keep alive history. The climate crisis made the decade of 2000 to 2009 the warmest on record at the time. Financial markets also had their own meltdown. The recession of 2008-2009 pushed people out of their jobs. They had time on their hands. Some started to garden and discovered that they liked it. Growing your own food was a good thing. So let's talk about your customers a little bit. Why do you think your customers are attracted to heirloom seeds and what you offer? Number one, because they love the flavor and the diversity. You know, they love to be able to try watermelons that have uh, so many different colors. And with all the different colors, it brings different flavor elements. You know, orange has different flavor compounds than red. And, you know, white watermelons have a different taste, again. And the same with the tomatoes. Each color uh, variation also generally brings about its own unique flavors. And then also they love the stories. They love to connect with their past. They love seeds that can be traded and shared and uh, exchanged. And, you know, if somebody wants to trade the seeds with their neighbor over the back fence, they can do that, have an ability to, you know, share and trade and 
has something from the past. Saving seeds might seem like a quaint pastime, but seeds carry culture and history. Civilizations live or starve depending on whether they have access to seeds. If our world ends because of climate catastrophe or war, we will need to start again, literally, from seed. The Kingdom of Norway has spent $9 million to dig a hardened and secure seed vault into the side of a mountain. This vault, called the Svardvard Vault, has the capacity to store 2.25 billion seeds. If civilization needs a reboot, the seeds will be there. Jerry Gettle has compared heirloom seeds to public domain software. They are, he says, the seeds of the people in that vault and in small backyard gardens everywhere. You can replant these seeds and they will grow again. And you can give these seeds to someone else and they can grow them. In the age of genetically modified plants and crops, why is that remarkable? Well, there's multiple multiple things that make it remarkable, but it's just a, you know a miracle to watch you know something that maybe the Romans grew that can be growing still today. You know, and, and in many cases you can look back at old artwork and it might be the same squash or melon that's you know in a 300 year old Japanese print, or that was you know documented in a cave or wherever it might have came from. These old varieties are connecting this to our ancestors, connecting this to, you know, other generations and other cultures. And I think that's the thing I think that I find more excited about heirlooms than anything else is their connection to our, uh, you know, our our ancestors, but also other cultures. You know, we can literally connect uh, our customers who want to grow varieties for making a Thai dish. They can actually get the real varieties from Thailand versus just substituting varieties into dishes as well as connecting with varieties from your family or something my grandmother used to grow, my great-grandmother used to grow. I can actually grow those same things today. There's very few other ways people can connect with their heritage as much as with gardening. Most uh, most things besides maybe animals and a few other, uh, you know, a few other, you know, maybe uh, like cooking or recipes. But other than that, there's really no really living ways to connect with your past, like in gardening. Yeah, that's so true. It gets back to the idea of seeds as transmitters of culture. Seeds are really, you know, for a very long have been current. It's been like currency or, you know, basically the before, you know, the last uh, generation or your last couple generations, you know, if you didn't save your seed in many parts of the planet, and even today, if you don't save your seeds in, in many of the developing countries, you're still going to go hungry in many places. Genetically modified seeds, the GM and GMO, are created to be resistant to disease and pests. If a company like Monsanto makes a GM seed, it will make that seed resistant to the Monsanto pesticide Roundup. Farmers are told they can use Roundup with the GM seeds in a kind of closed-loop system. But nature is not a closed loop. Non-GMO crops are becoming resistant to Roundup, and there are new diseases and pests cropping up. If a new strain of disease pops up or a new insect pops up, and all of a sudden the variety that you're growing doesn't have resistance to this uh, strain of a disease, uh, what, they, what commercial breeders still rely on is they have to go back to these foundation seeds. They're still going back to the traditional varieties for breeding. The problem is as we lose more and more of these traditional varieties, it reduces the gene pool for breeders to work with. And that's why it's so important for you know home gardeners and farmers 
everybody to conserve these old varieties because even if you're developing modern hybrids, you still have to start with some base stock. You still have to have the genes of these old insect-resistant varieties or these old uh, heat-tolerant varieties to develop the modern varieties. Like, you know, the corn that we have today, much of it's based off of the old reed yellow dent. And without reed yellow dent, we would not even have the modern hybrid corn that's on the market today. So, I mean, without these uh, foundational building blocks, as we lose them, we also lose the security of our food supply. You know, the risk of totally losing um, you know, an entire crop, like bananas, for example, most of the bananas on the planet uh, for commercial use are Cavendish varieties, which is one of the more disease-prone varieties, and many plantations are suffering and struggling, and some people think that the whole uh, variety could eventually be, you know, basically lost to commercial production, and a lot of it's because people have selected just basically one variety for our, you know, dinner tables, and the more diversity we can uh, increase into our food supply, and the more local we can make our food supply, that also increases the diversity simply by keeping things local and growing different varieties in different places. Right. It's such a strange thing. And Rob Dunn wrote about this so compellingly and never out of season that we don't we go into the supermarket and there's really only one variety of bananas and they're all related to each other genetically, which is kind of strange to think about. And it m might be similar with certain tomatoes and other things like that. And there's a real danger, as you're saying, to the food supply and a danger that's being if it's addressed from the seed perspective, it seems to be a smart way. If it's addressed from, oh, we need more pesticides to this latest problem that's come up, it seems to create a, a vicious cycle. Yeah, pesticides would be only, you know, it's basically a temporary patch, you know, and uh, it's a temporary patch. It works well in the short term, but, you know, long term, generally, uh, there's, you know, flaws that start to appear. And what are some of those flaws? Is it just that we start going down this rabbit hole of pest pesticide, new pest, new pesticide, new GM, new pesticide. It's, I think, what people may not be thinking about. Certainly, I learned this from reading Rob Dunn's book, is that this is not standing still. There's going to be new pests, and there's going to be new diseases. There's going to be some new bug. There's going to be some new something. And the way to address it historically has been with seed diversity, and in modern times, the way to address it is with some new spray, which is, as you're saying, a short-term patch. And that's the biggest challenge with, you know, GM crops that are developed for Roundup resistance. After a while, the, you know, the Roundup, uh, the weeds that were getting killed by the Roundup are eventually, some of them are deciding, well, we can figure out how to live with the Roundup and get by with the Roundup. So then they got, then they have to figure out a new way to, uh, you know, develop something stronger, something different to keep, you know, keep up with the progress of the weeds or the pest. That's why I think, you know, diversity um, is probably, it might not be an immediate fix, but it's a long-term, you know, a long-term fix having diversity. Because even if you lose, say, the entire corn crop, if you're still growing oats and barley and all these other crops all over the country, even if your entire corn crop would go away, you would still be okay. So it's not just uh, diversity among each individual uh, species, but even among the species. So many of the species, like who grows rutabagas and turnips anymore? It's like totally, these used to be staple food crops. 
and now people hardly even eat them, if if at all. Right. There were, first of all, we probably wouldn't recognize a rutabaga if we ran into one on the street, then alone in the market, because they're they're really hard to find. Certain of these vegetables that probably were common a while ago are relegated to some bin, and I don't even know what it is. Yeah, and our, our grandparents, grandparents, great-grandparents generation, many vegetables were quite common. For example, if you look at cauliflower, if I looked at it in a catalog from around 1880 and 1890, and there was like 45 different varieties of cauliflower alone. And you can open up a seed catalog today, and there might be, you know, two varieties of cauliflower. I mean, that shows how the, you know, in general... The, the amount of diversity has went down as far as what's available, especially in some of these crops that aren't considered, you know, like uh, common garden or common food crops, the like, like turnips and rutabagas, you know, the amount of diversity in these crops has went down and the amount of seed in general being planted has went down. People are eating more things like, you know, you know, unfortunately it's starting to change, but uh, in over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, people just started eating more and more things like iceberg lettuce, you know, white potatoes, just more and more starchy and uh, bland, uh, non-nutritious foods in general. I know in the last few years, people have started considering, you know, the nutrition of their food and also the diversity again. And people are interested. It's just uh, taking a little while, I think, to get enough people growing and eating some of these crops to really make it so they're a, um, they're actually a potential to help feed the population because in many cases, they're still just specialty crops. Who is your customer, and how has that customer type changed over the years? It's a very diverse group. Uh, we still have some people that are, you know, buying seeds to preserve to put away in case something bad happened. Then, but that's just a small, small percentage. That our general customer now is mostly home gardeners, uh, you know, medium to large gardeners, small gardeners, people everywhere from you know downtown New York City to uh, you know Tokyo to Dallas to uh, you know out in the country out here, Amish farmers that uh, love to grow heirloom varieties. A lot of the people that order from us are very uh, dedicated gardeners. And we also have a lot of very young gardeners compared to your average older mail-order company. And that's probably also because we're a younger company. Yeah, I would definitely fit your customer type because I'm from New York, but I moved out here to California a while ago. And I somehow found your catalog. And I had, when I showed up in California, we rented a house and I had a little piece of dirt that was probably, I'm picturing in my mind, maybe... 20 feet by five feet, you know, but it was dirt and it was pretty in pretty good shape and hadn't been, you know, messed up by the previous tenant. And I planted tomatoes. We had a forest of tomatoes and I totally fit that profile of the sort of at the moment, you know, dabbling, but then got serious. I even had corn one year. So it was a pretty good deal. Oh, that's really neat. That's really fun. What kind of seeds do you recommend to people just getting started with this? There's, it depends on kind of where people are at, but in general, probably my number one recommended seed would be beet seed because beets produce uh, easily in almost any type of climate, and they produce a, you know, a tuber and, uh, and green leaves, and they're super easy to grow. People are pretty successful on almost any crop as long as they don't go too far outside their uh, you know, climate zone. But in most of the country, almost anything in the catalog can be produced. I know this is like asking, what's your, who's your favorite child? But it will be my last question. What's one of your favorite seeds? Oh, that's, again, a hard question as far as my favorite seed. But um, this year, it's actually our favorite this year was the Atomic uh, Grape Tomato, which is actually a new, a new variety. A new variety is actually not an heirloom. It was developed from heirloom varieties. 
by a friend who is basically producing new varieties that will be heirlooms for the future, but it has tremendous taste. That was one of my favorites this year. But overall, um, there's several as far as long-term favorites. The Orange Glow Watermelon, though, is hard to beat. That's a variety that's about 50 or so years old, 50, 60 years old, and it just has a tremendous deep orange color and a wonderful, um, sweet, fruity, um, deeper flavor than most watermelons. Most watermelons have kind of the same flavor profile, but it has much more almost citrusy, and and it's so beautiful as well. And also, it's starting to become really rare. It's not very common anymore. That sounds wonderful. Next time I get myself a little bit of dirt, I'll try that. Yeah, they're fantastic. Jerry, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. This has been The Future of Food. Go to futurefood.fm and you'll find transcripts of all shows, articles that build on what we talk about in the shows, and you can subscribe to the mailing list and never miss a podcast. That's futurefood.fm. I'm Lee Schneider.